Hi, welcome to Emerging Pharmaceutical Treatments for Dry Disease. I'm Dr. Mark Lubenstein from Scottsdale, Arizona, and I'm proud to be sitting next to my friend and colleague, Dr. Mila Brujic from, we're in Ohio. Bowling Green, Ohio. Bowling Green, Ohio. It's all the way down there. That's awesome. Today, what we want to do is just kind of talk about, you know, what is the first line treatment for dry patients? And one of my biggest questions always is we have so much new and emerging technology and yet we still have really good treatments out there. Yeah. So Mila, what, what do you still consider to be your first line treatment? Well, I think you're right, Mark, because part of the reason is we're, we're constantly thinking about how we're gonna make the eye function better, but as we're doing that and rehabilitating the ocular surface, we always need to be thinking about how we're gonna actually support it while we're doing that. And artificial tears still hold a massive place of importance in that realm. And I think there's two big things that we're thinking about right now. One is preservatives and the removal of those preservatives. Yeah, um, and we now have the advantage of multi-dose bottles, several options of those without preservatives. And the second thing is some of these new demulcents um, or wetting agents are just absolutely phenomenal in terms of the way they give us the ability to retain moisture on the surface of the eye and also keep it there for longer periods of time. So it provides this awesome just kind of tool to help us as we're rehabilitating the ocular surfaces and also for those individuals who have episodic dry as well. Yeah. I, I think the big challenge for us as clinicians is, is that this is often an over-the-counter quote-unquote recommendation yes. mm -hmm. and I feel that most patients actually walk in they've either already started using a drop you know people are on computers um, they're spending time in airplanes or traveling and so they gravitate towards so what right. they see at the grocery store You're so right I think what we need to do is be more diligent about the fact that you know establishing homeostasis is is, is I think it's kind of like a unicorn. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's like, it's just something that, you know, we can believe it's there and I want to believe there are, but it doesn't mean I'm going to stop looking for it. Yeah. And I think that we need to keep working to help that for our patients, which goes to the heart of if they're going to be keeping the eyes lubricated. And I look at these as more lubricating. Yep. Because, um, you know, we, we now have like the opportunity to neurostimulation. Yep to Agreed. provide basal tears. Agreed. Yep. These are, yep. you know, kind of a recovery and more importantly, they're lubricating for the time. I, I guess my question, you had mentioned non-preserved. Yep. And there's a new multi-dose non-preserved bottle out there, a single dose. We've, we've seen a few different companies that make them. Is that your go-to? Do you, do you, I mean, or do you selectively choose who should be preservative-free? Um, so, all great points. I couldn't agree with you more, Mark. I think our job as clinicians is to be very directed in what we're actually telling our patients to do because of the fact of what you said, they're usually using something before they walk into our office. So I think as directed as we can be is important. I think preservative free is critical. I think, I don't know if clinically anybody could say, oh, you're, you're not a candidate for a preservative free bottle. We just have so many options now that I think it just falls right in the bag of importance there. I think some of these new unique um, wedding agents, Trailos, Hyaluronin, these things that are combined in these artificial tears, just again, they provide a supplement to our efforts when, when we're trying to shoot for that unicorn, trying to get yeah. back to that level of homeostasis. I, I also gravitate towards the fact that if you look at the dues to definition of dry, how they specifically added in um, neurosensory abnormalities. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, we, we kind of dance around the fact that with dry eye, there's there's such a, dis such a disconnect between signs and symptoms. And 
we know that you know excessive amounts of preservative can reduce the, the neuronal effects on the cornea, um, maybe you know send our patients into a little bit of a maybe almost even a, a level one or a type one um, NK. So I look at other risk factors. You know, patients that are on multiple glaucoma medications, patients who are diabetic, patients who um, have had previous surgery. Those I look at and basically say, look, let's not make things worse. And so those are the ones that I would absolutely encourage, and especially I'm in a post-refractive and cataract uh, environment, it's, those are the ones I, I really want to be using a preservative-free. I think you know, when they're first starting out, I'll, I'll kind of let them you know, kind of dip their toes in the non-preserve because they think it's easier. Um, but I think we need to assess other risk factors too. I think the marketing of these drops sometimes push patients into just preserve drops because they don't even know any different. Right. I think that's where our role is critically important to direct those patients to do exactly what we want them to be utilizing. That way we know if our efforts are failing or succeeding with those right. patients. Well, and especially the fact that we now have other options when it comes to preservative we're, we're always limited by those little vials, yeah, the little, yeah. Oh, little vials. and it's like <laughs> well now we have a multi-dose or as we just discussed uh, a neuro a neurostimulant way of uh, providing a basal tear so you know artificial tears obviously you know just the term artificial always kind of gets me lubricating drops are important for patients but how do you address inflammation yeah, so we actually have a very strategic approach in our practice, Mark. We measure inflammation levels by kind of the only test that we can, and the measure is levels of MMP9. You're either above or below normal range. But that actually helps guide us on whether or not we should be starting um, some of those immunocontrolling agents with patients. To your point, you know, this disruption of the signs and the symptoms that we see clinically, I think, are a combination of several things. You mentioned a lot of them. I'll tell you that allowing inflammation to occur over long periods of time on the ocular surface I think is one of those things that will disrupt sensitivity. So my philosophy has always been when you see elevated levels of inflammation, treat and treat early for those patients. And we're fortunate we have a lot of options. We have lofitograst, we have cyclosporin at various concentrations, 0.05 and 0.09%. So we have all of these options to treat these people. and reduce that inflammation burden. Do, do you try to avoid going towards the generic options? If possible, and the only reason I say that is we've seen in the glaucoma world, there's just less predictability to it. There's about 20 to 30% of patients who use generic latanoprost who we need to move on to something else because of these formulations. And I think eye care is unique when we're thinking about generics. I think the formulations are so critical in terms of how they're actually interacting with the ocular surface and getting to the tissues that they need to be at. Yeah, there, there's, there's a definite distinction between the mechanism of delivery um, versus the mechanism of action. And I think that as clinicians, we right. need to make sure our patients understand that difference too. So now let's talk about you know <clears throat> inflammation and your, your treatment strategies. Do you, when you talk to patients, do you let them know this is this is a lifetime situation? Do you talk to them about the chronic nature of this? Um, how, how do you talk to your patients about when you when you prescribe these anti-inflammatories? Yep. So so the way that I describe it, and we are heavy in terms of the education that we provide our patients, Park. We have anterior segment cameras that literally will illustrate for the patient exactly what's occurring on the eye. And if there has already been any type of downstream sequelae from the dryness on the surface of the eye, yeah. 
In doing so, they just feel better about it. I describe to them that they, the condition is chronic and progressive. And then we talk about how we're going to manage that chronic and progressive nature of the inflammation that we're seeing on the surface of the eye. So do, you, do you ever start that discussion earlier? Because you, I, I, you had said a few minutes ago that you know doing it early, trying to quell this inflammatory flame, if you will. Do you ever look at a patient and say, look, you know, we're headed in a direction where we might have to start you on an anti-inflammatory drop. I'm gonna bring you back, see where you're at, because I know you, you said you check at MMP9 levels, but I have found that when you prepare a patient for something, like say this is our likely next course of action, it doesn't become quite as a surprise as opposed to, oh, now we need to start a treatment. So philosophically, I'm with you 100% Mark for two reasons. One, we have a lot of pre-optometry students in our practice and I share with them, this is why we treat early when we actually see those more advanced cases. We have, in my opinion, the ability to avoid some of these more serious cases from occurring if we treat early. So to answer your question directly Mark, yeah, we do treat early and we start with more um, regimented treatment therapies mm -hmm. and we see them back and we follow up with them we say let's see how your symptoms and also the signs are doing and this may be enough for your level of dryness we may actually have to get into more complicated therapies but let's see how you do with phase one of the yeah. treatment process yeah. and I, I think that's something that we as clinicians it, it's newer for us mm -hmm. you know we now have these opportunities to actually do in-office treatments where we've never had before. Yep. We both, you know, we started with our first line treatment of artificial tears and then that was it. I mean, so now we have so many more options. So no, 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 we had rice in a sock, Mark, yeah, as well. But what kind of rice though? Is Monty, Jasmine, it's just so confusing for patients. But let's switch gears a little bit. You know, we know that meibomian gland dysfunction is I, I mean, I frankly feel that it is probably the most underdiagnosed um, disease and I think that you know we have to treat it as a disease you know we look at the 86% uh, of all dry eye patients have some form of meibomian gland dysfunction I think it's just important for us to, to look for it so before we, we talk about some novel treatments that are coming out um, because really you know obstruction and inflammation is the key of meibomian gland dysfunction how do you look for meibomian gland dysfunction in your practice? I think that is the one most important question you've asked out of all this, Mark, because the, major <laughs> the, the, the majority of meibomian gland dysfunction, as we know, is non-obvious meibomian gland dysfunction. And by the nature of its name, you look at the lid margin, you can't tell the individual has it until you actually attempt expression. And that's not, that's not an aggressive expression, that's a gentle expression with either uh, something that's controlled meibomian gland evaluator or just your thumb pressing on it and seeing what the quality of those oils that are coming out of the glands are or even if the, oil, the gland is expressing oil. So I think it's critical to identify these patients and identify them earlier because just like every disease, uh, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure and I think that's what we're dealing with with these people. They're so much easier to treat successfully when we catch them early and that's part of the reason why we've become much more aggressive about really understanding how to diagnose them early and how to really get them to treatment sooner. So you know uh, we're, we're seeing a new molecule that might be coming out um, which is just what perfluorohexyl Octane. Um, which, I said that very well. You know, I, I've been practicing. I've been practicing. Um, it seems kind of exciting, right? It's going to act to kind of keep coat the cornea, but maybe also seep into the meibomian glands. We're, we're not quite sure. 
moreover, we have those you know, opportunities to heat the glands and get some expression going. How are you or do you differentiate between you know, kind of using a pharmaceutical treatment versus utilizing one of the mechanical managements? Well, you know, Mark, it's funny because we don't have a choice right now. So right now we don't have a choice. So we are literally, we have to provide heat to the lid margin and we have to find, provide some mechanical pressure in order to evacuate those glands. Pharmaceuticals in the future, as you described, are gonna change that paradigm just a little bit. And we're gonna have options for our patients. And some individuals I think are going to benefit from the topical drop. Some patients are gonna benefit from the actual in-office treatment. And I think there's gonna be this subset of patients that are gonna benefit from both of them. I'm excited because it's gonna give our patients just one more option in this clinical armamentarium for us to actually make these individuals function yeah, better. I think options are always great, especially, I mean, right now we know you know, these are hairless follicles, they're building keratin. Mm -hmm. I think it's it's really important to do some form of debridement. Do you do any form of, of debridement or micro blepro exfoliation? So I think a clean lid is a starting of all of this. I think that sometimes clinically we jump to the parts of the eye that we want to examine more. So I think oftentimes right. that means overlooking the lid margin. So again, I think it's critically important to clean that lid and that lid margin. So microblepharo exfoliation is an important part of our practice for these patients. And we found that in some of these MGD patients, simply cleaning the lids helps them function better. So, you, so what I'm hearing from you though is that you might see incorporating these new pharmaceutical agents as a way to keep your orifices open. Um, if there is, you know, some theory of penetrating into the gland and, and loosening the mybum, that that would be more just kind of adjunct to the other heating and uh, expressing of the glands. Yeah, absolutely. And as a stepwise approach, Mark, cleaning the lid margin first, seeing what the response is for the patient. And then if we need more advanced options, whether that be pharmaceutical or the more advanced procedures, a combination of the two, I think that's, that's gonna be the winning combination in yeah. the future. I think one of the things that we tend to do as clinicians is we do an either or effect. Um, and I w I've always kind of felt maybe it's just in our nature as optometrists, which is better, one or two. And, and especially when we're talking about dry eye disease and just the, the multifactorial nature of this, this complex, just frustrating uh, disease state is that we have to do multiple treatments at the same time. You know, that obstruction, the inflammation, keeping lubricating drops on the eyes. And I love your, you know, detailed approach, talking to patients earlier, you know, laying out a game plan and letting them know that it's not, we're going to start something and end it. It might just be a continuum. Yeah, I, I think that we're starting to model more the way that we manage ocular surface disease, the way that we manage glaucoma. I mean, if, if you start a patient on a drop and their pressure gets lower, you're not gonna say, shoot, we didn't hit the target, so we're gonna discontinue that drop and we're gonna start a second drop and just start that one from scratch, see if we can get to the target. You're gonna say, all right, I've started with what I felt was the most efficacious. Now we need a little bit more. Let's layer another therapy on top of that to see if we can get you to that place or that point where we're perceiving success. And I think we're getting to that level with yeah. ocular surface disease and I think you're right, we were so used to, well, if this doesn't work, let's scrap that and let's try something else. And I think really the best successes that we've had in our practices are those individuals that maybe have this multi-layered approach because as you know, Mark, ocular surface disease is in a one etiology condition. There are several things that are contributing to it. And when you leverage the tools that we have appropriately, 
you're going to get to a place where you get really, really good results with some of these more advanced patients. Yeah, which, which makes all the new technologies and all the new therapeutics that we have uh, pretty exciting for us and for our patients. Great. Well, I, thanks for taking the time um, no, sitting down you, with us. And uh, thanks for listening. And uh, have a good day.